Hello, this is Stephen McInerney from the Ramsey Centre. In October 2018, Gillian Melchior published an article in the Wall Street Journal titled Fake News Comes to Academia, how three scholars gulled academic journals to publish hoax papers on grievance studies. Melchior's piece described how the three scholars submitted 20 fake papers to high-ranking, peer-reviewed journals over a two-year period. By the time the story broke, four of the papers had been published, three others had been accepted for publication, and seven were still under review. The three scholars involved came clean and published a breakdown of the hoax on the website of the current affairs and opinion magazine, Aereo. The editor of Aereo magazine and one of the three scholars behind the grievance studies hoax is in Sydney as a guest of the Ramsey Centre. She is a scholar of medieval women's writing and a self-described exile from the academy. To talk more about the grievance studies affair and other aspects of her life and work, we are delighted to welcome Helen Pluckrose as our first guest on the Ramsey Centre podcast. Helen Pluckrose, welcome to Sydney. We're delighted to have you here. I want to start by asking you, what are grievance studies? Uh, grievance studies... It's something that, that's often misunderstood, and I, I think we're partly to blame for that. So we really need to set it out quite clearly as an approach. It's a methodology rather than a discipline. So grievance studies isn't, um, for example, any kind of um, investigation into social inequality or um, oppression or identity. It's an approach that begins with the assumption that there will be a certain power imbalance and then reads interactions through a very um, specific set of theories in order to discover that there is. <laughs> a power imbalance. Yeah. But there aren't... Uh, one can't go to university and take a course in grievance studies. Uh, they wouldn't call it that, no. no. I mean, some um, interestingly, some academics are now. Um, calling their work grievance studies in a kind of... They've um, appropriated your term. <laughs> yes, yes, as a kind of uh, defiance against <laughs> our use of the term. But if you go into something like gender studies, ethnic studies, uh, sexuality studies, and these are all um, often sort of taught together, then you are very likely to find those same sets of uh, theories, uh, queer theory, post-colonial theory, critical race theory, intersectional feminism, as well as um, studies of disablism and fat studies, they're all likely to be in there. They're going to call um, very explicitly on the theorists, uh, queer theorists and critical race theorists who have drawn very explicitly on the postmodernists. So it's a kind of intellectual development over the last 50 years, but there's, um, there's a very sort of consistent... Uh, framework of um, a conception of society. Okay. And so in your view, have, have has this approach um, permeated the, the whole of the humanities or is it really located within particular disciplines? It pops up all over the place. I mean, it, it's concentrated around um, something that ends in studies and begins with an identity. But it can pop up anywhere. For example, we had one of our papers published in Geography. Now, Geography generally isn't a grievance study, but there is a journal which does feminist approaches to geography, and that is very much so. Okay. You mentioned that one of the, one of the papers appeared in a, a journal on geography. Now, generally, what kind of journals did you target when you 
went on this adventure to uh, to hoax peer-reviewed journals? Our, our process for um, picking journals was, mo was mostly suggested by our research. So when we were looking into um, certain ideas, um, such as you know, white fragility or toxic masculinity, then a lot of papers would be coming from the same journals. So then we look at the journals that they're coming from and we aimed at the highest and the most influential. So when I um, looked um, particularly at feminist epistemology, then where this was all coming from overwhelmingly was from Hypatia. So we read some more papers um, explicitly from Hypatia and then we aimed uh, two of our papers at them and one of them got in and another one they were very positive about and um, we're, we're fairly sure it would have done um, eventually. They said it's just not quite ready yet. So these were big targets, big, they were big fish as it were, Hypatia and other journals. They weren't... Um... They weren't easy targets, or they shouldn't have been easy targets. No, they, they shouldn't have been. People um, often don't understand how rankings work with journals, so they will look at um, the ones we targeted and show that they have um, the impact of two or something, and then highest impacts are much higher. So then they say, well, they're fringe journals. Well, they're not. They are the top of the kind of sub-discipline where theory meets a subject. Yeah. So they are the ones that needed to be targeted. Yeah. It's, it's where this, these ideas are coming from. Well, let's pick up that idea that they needed to be targeted. I mean, what, what were you trying to achieve in, in hoaxing these, these uh, journals? Yeah, well, we don't even, we, we call that the H word and we, we try not to use it because we don't really consider what we were doing a hoax. It wasn't, um, you know, a, a cheap trick. Yeah. What we wanted to do was really dig into the scholarship that was coming out of them to get some of the the worst examples to cite them and use them to write our own essays. And then the aim of that was that when people saw what we had written and what had been accepted, they would have to accept that this is a problem. Yeah. Because we get a lot of pushback from well-meaning um, liberals and, and lefties in the academy who know that sometimes this can get a bit silly, but they've got a sense of loyalty to their colleagues. They're yeah. behind gender equality, LGBT equality. Yeah. They don't really want to accept that there's a significant problem here. Yeah. And we think there is, and, and we really think that needs to be done something about, and we need the left liberals on side if we don't want the response to it to be rub it all out. Helen, tell us about the dog park paper. <laughs> Everybody wants to know about the dog park paper. <laughs> well, that might be worth pursuing. Why do you think people are so intrigued by that paper? I, I think it's because it was the most graspable and I think it was because it was funny. Yeah. It, was so, it was so clearly absurd. It should have been recognised. So that, that paper stemmed from um, a mad idea of um, Peter Bogosian's. And then I um, added the idea of uh, make it into a kind of implicit bias test where we had people... Um, looking at, um, we were looking at the way people responded to their dogs performing unwanted humping in um, dog parks. <laughs> and uh, so we, we added to this a, a kind of, so we can detect uh, rape culture and misogyny and homophobia from the way humans react to their dogs 
behaving. And then we can extrapolate that even further and say that nightclubs are rape condoning spaces and that black feminist criminology proves this and we need to train men like dogs probably with electric collars. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> so it's funny, but it's also rather dangerous that people the idea yes. that people are taking this seriously somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that that's what most of them are. That there's an element of the absurd and there's an element of the alarming. Yeah, as in the case of one of the other papers, which was based, am I right, on a chapter of Mein Kampf? Yes, that one, we, we shouldn't overstate that one because the words have been changed. It could not be read as a um, defence of Nazism. But that air of, of grievance of in-groups and out-groups and sort of um, totalitarian zeal, it, it, it remains. Yeah. And um, what's your, your favourite papers? Your favourite paper? My my favourite one is the one that that gets least interest because it's most densely theoretical. Right. But um, it was what we called our hoax on hoaxes. Okay. And it's called when the jokes on you. And we um, took aim at academic hoaxes. In the paper, we um, criticised humour when it comes from dominant groups, okay. and um, said it's only really valid when it comes from marginalised <laughs> ones. And any kind of criticism or, or, or humorous um, approach to social justice issues is, is very dangerous and should be punished. Yes. And um, was it accepted, that paper? That one was accepted fastest of all. Okay. <laughs> all right. And has it played out the way you expected? I mean, have you actually convinced people who otherwise were um, sceptical about your view of um, grievance studies? A very small number of people have come forward and said, we didn't believe you before, now we do, yeah. thank you. But more often, um, people have, while still being very angry with us, have just distanced themselves from that kind of scholarship. So they will say that what we did was completely unethical and it doesn't show the problem at all. Nevertheless, they themselves are using empirical data and not theory. Yeah. So I think our aim as, as well as, you know, to, to straightforwardly say, look, here's a problem, and give people the opportunity to say, okay, yes, we see it now. The, the aim was also to make it somewhat embarrassing, to make yeah. respectable academics want to say, I don't do this kind of scholarship for yeah. their own reputation. Yeah. What sort of ethical considerations did you and your colleagues um, enter into when, you know, deciding to, to um, send in these, these fake papers? Right. Well, we um, often the word that's applied to us is um, is bad faith. So we we wrote um, papers in bad faith, and I suppose in one ex to one extent you can say we did because we didn't believe what we wrote. However, the larger project was one of um, showing some very particular problems. We uh, that is what we did. We did that in good faith. We obviously always intended to reveal what we had done and um, the ethical considerations that we. We were going to go for a maximum of two years because we didn't want that bad scholarship out there yeah. uh, to be built on. We also um, agreed, committed to if any journal asked us, are you hoaxing us? We would say yes. Yeah. We had Michael Nainer who was um, filming us and when he came on board, he wasn't entirely convinced by us and we okay. agreed that he could film absolutely everything and he would get it out there no matter what. Um, one thing that many people don't know is that we were asked a few times um, to act as reviewers. Okay. Because of oh, our on own... The basis of the, okay, on the basis of your excellent papers. Yes, and we, we thought about that, and, and that would have been very interesting. We could have seen how we could actually direct the... the yeah. um, the fields, but then we we decided against this because we didn't think it would be ethical to take somebody's paper 
and um, and and steer them wrong and yeah. affect their career and also get more stuff out there. Were you um, pleased that a journalist at least saw through this, that there was someone out there who saw through this and was willing to... Well, to yeah, go on record, but we, we didn't. We didn't ever doubt that. Yeah. We've um, all the time that we've been talking about some of the essays that are that are coming out, some of the ideas. It's been very common for the average person, including journalists, to com immediately see the problem. Yeah. So we don't think the problem of grievance studies of this theoretical approach is widespread. Okay. It just has undue um, influence and importance in the academy. Could you talk more about that and perhaps even its influence beyond the academy? I mean, what is the influence in the academy and, and what is the influence of this stuff beyond universities? Well, within the universities, that the problem is within these particular courses that you just can't write anything else. So I've, I've found this um, myself at both undergraduate and postgraduate and it's why I've, I've stepped away and not gone back to do my PhD because I want to look at gender and yeah. I can't do that in a, the way I want. So, Well, actually, I wondered, um, you describe yourself as a feminist. Um, how do you see your feminism as different from the kind of feminism that you're critiquing through these, that you were critiquing through these papers or that you're exposing? I, I used to describe myself as a feminist. My mother um, was very much a feminist in the 60s and 70s. She... Um, campaign to get uh, Lloyds Bank that she was working for at the time to open up accountancy exams to women. They weren't doing that at that time. And she also wanted to get a mortgage, um, which she wasn't able to do without a male guarantor. So those were the kind of issues um, mm. she addressed. And that's a, a liberal feminism. That's, yeah. um, you know, giving women the same opportunities and rights that men have. And that's um, something that I've been very um, involved in. And I also am generally interested in the empowerment of women, the strength of women, the experiences of women, and that's what I study historically. So my one of my main concerns with current feminism is that it disempowers women because it um, has these concepts of microaggressions and mansplaining and the idea that women really need to have special protections around them in the public sphere so that they can, can cope. That's something that liberal feminists like me, like my mother, like my grandmother, have really worked hard to overcome. So I no longer call myself a feminist, not because my values have changed, but because the term feminist is not widely understood to mean the aim for gender equality. Now, for example, in the UK, um, over 75% of people support gender equality, but only 7% identify as feminist. So clearly there is a disparity, there's a, there's a some kind of break in our understanding of what feminism is and what the aim for gender equality is. Helen, you spoke last night for the Ramsey Centre on the rise and whys of grievance studies. Um, and I'm just wondering, how have you been received um, by Australian audiences? You've also done a lot of media, you've done media with um, ABC, uh, various newspapers, Alan Jones and just wondering if you can talk about how you've been received by Australian audiences. Um, I have been received by Australian audiences in very much the same way that I am by um, American and um, UK audiences. So I've had some um, delightful messages. People have come up and um, had really good conversations. I've learned about how um, 
this kind of grievance studies is affecting charity work, how it's uh, appearing in sociology and um, and in business. So people have come up and they're very interested in talking to me about what they are seeing in their own um, areas of expertise and, and how what I've been saying connects to it. And I don't often know about these sort of um, specific manifestations. So I'm hoping to... Um, to stay in touch with people, perhaps connect them with others and, and better understand how, how this is working out in the wider world. There's also been a significant um, amount of um, quite normal abuse. I've also had some, um, some wonderful fan mail from um, some Australians. A lady in uh, Melbourne uh, wrote to me this morning saying, uh, why don't you stop um, attacking equality and instead focus on uh, business and corporate corruption? Oh, I suppose that's because you're in their pocket. You suck. So this is the kind of um, fan mail that I'm, I'm quite accustomed to. It doesn't address anything that I'm actually saying. It just wants to put me in the enemy camp because I'm, I'm not completely on board with the certain approaches to social justice issues. But you seem quite able to withstand that. That criticism. It's silly. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add to the conversation. If people have legitimate criticisms, and, and some, um, a couple of interviewers for ABC did ask some very good questions about this, like how do I prevent um, my study from feeding into reactionary right-wing criticisms of equality issues? Now, that's a good question. So I can speak to that, and I can um, talk about how we can both try and fix problems um, in academia without feeding anti-intellectual currents. That's a conversation we need to have. The kind that goes, you're a far-right fascist Nazi and I hate you, is really just best ignored. <laughs> I mean, you identify as being on the left. When you, when you do that, are you um, conscious, though, of how, in a way, notwithstanding that there are regional differences, that the term seems to mean something within a Western context, so on social media or in your in your um, journal area, um, you're using that, you'd use that term and presumably there's some core that survives translation to these different countries. Yeah, there, there is, as, as far as, as I'm concerned, and I, I wrote um, the piece that what, no liberal lefties are not right wing to explain this, because my um, leftism and what I see as the core of leftism is very much economic. Okay. So I, um, I I come from the socialist um, position, and I my heart is still socialist. But I've I've come as I've got older to recognise that a regulated um, capitalism is actually um, more wealth producing for society. Yeah. It, it it helps the poorest and the richest. So I am no longer anti capitalism, but I am still very much in favour of. Um, taxing the highly the most wealthy yeah. and I want a, a strong welfare system I want yeah. a nationalized health yeah. health care and, and then with the identity issues then I'm still very much in in favor of gender equality LGBT equality and yeah. um, racial equality so I'm I'm left but my left is my leftism is mostly economic when it yeah. comes to culture I'm, I'm much more um, likely to be described as libertarian because I yeah. think people should be left alone to believe what they want. Um, Helen, I just wonder if we could change um, change tack a little now. And um, part of the mission of the, of the Ramsey Centre is to promote and support the establishment of great books courses in our universities. 
so we we therefore ask um, our guests really if they can uh, answer this question, and that is, what is the book that has had the greatest influence on your life, and why? I, I find this difficult to answer because there have been um, so many, and and they all sort of contribute a little bit. But um, if I were to go with let's go with two. Um, and a, a historical one and a, a present one. So historically, we have John Milton's Areopagitica, which um, Aereo magazine is, is named after. And although Milton was speaking very much from his time, and um, he's, he's positing the importance of freedom of speech, and he's speaking as a Puritan. Uh, unlicensed printing, yes. Yes, he wants, to, um, he wants everybody to have the ability to... Um, to, to interpret um, the Bible for themselves and to make their own arguments. He even argues that it is better to be wrong having um, got there through sincere thought than to be right having just accepted it uncritically. And that, I think, is wonderful. Of course, as he is coming from his own time, he doesn't extend this freedom of speech to Catholics or atheists. Or Jews. <laughs> or Jews, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think the arguments that he makes there, this sort of burgeoning of, um, of freedom of speech, which came so interestingly from the Puritans, is something that everybody um, should read from their own context. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, before we get on to your second, um, <laughs> bef yeah, before you get, we get on to the, the second book, um, just on that, on, on Milton, because obviously there's, there's a, an inherent contradiction in advocating not only freedom of expression but freedom of conscience at the same time as limiting who that freedom extends to. And I wonder if liberalism has ever actually found a way not to have a group that it excludes, that it almost inherently has to have a group that it excludes. It, it has to exclude the illiberal, but it, it doesn't always do that um, consistently, depending on how it's manifesting. That's something I think we'll be working out for forever. Okay. <laughs> okay. And your, your second book? The second one is, is Kindly Inquisitors by um, Jonathan Rausch. Okay. And he wrote that 25 years ago to look at, um, at the rising uh, problem on, on university campuses, which came from what he called the, um, sim the egalitarian principle, which is that we need to respect all ideas equally. And so the simple egalitarian principle is, is just a generally sort of benign, let's appreciate everything. But the radical um, egalitarian principle wants to shut down um, at certain kinds of speech. It, want, it wants to um, raise up some all kinds of, of ideas in this kind of social justice view. And he was speaking about this before we had really seen the rise of social justice. But he argued for what he calls liberal science and that um, that liberal approach, he says, it isn't kind. We think liberalism is, is meant to be kind and inclusive. Well, it isn't, not when it comes to ideas. It's saying everybody must be able to state their ideas. Everyone must be able to argue and challenge with others' ideas. Nobody has final say, but it really is a fight to the death of ideas. And that is how we progress. And I'm, um, I, I just want everyone to read this book. And then you do have a way to articulate what we are trying to do here. When we're trying to open things up, we're trying to support freedom of speech and freedom of ideas, but in a rigorous way where they can do battle and, and we can progress. I will read it and <laughs> encourage others to do so. Helen Pluckrose, it's been so wonderful having you here at the Ramsey Centre. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. And um, we hope to see you again and um, best of luck.
Thank you, Stephen.